0: Hey, it's Duff Dixon, and welcome to the Live Wide Awake podcast. Thank you for being one of our listeners in 88 countries around the world. Today, we're speaking with Alina Trujina, CEO and managing partner of The Radical Fund, an early-stage VC fund investing in founders who are delivering climate resilience for Southeast Asia. Alina is also the co-founder of the Founders Factory Africa, the Pan-African Venture Studio and the VC Fund, where she raised over $140 US from LPs and investors. Before that, she helped scale over 76 tech ventures in nine countries across East Africa and South Asia, and spent seven years at the World Bank. In this episode, we talk about the inclusive climate transition and the unfair advantage of Silicon Valley the importance of mitigation and adaptation ventures, what it means to be radical, and the importance of relearning. Okay, it's time to live wide awake. Lina, thank you so much for joining us today on the Live Wide Awake podcast. I am really excited to be diving into the conversation and, you know, doing my reading up on you. You've had such a fascinating life. And I actually, of course, didn't know when I first met you. So yeah, you've been doing incredible things with your time on this planet and I want to break it down. So first I wanted to start with your journey of being a political refugee and ending up working for the World Bank. So let's do that first. Well, it's quite a big chapter, but let's do that chapter first.
1: I'll try and summarize it. First of all, thank you so much, Steph. It's, it's uh, such a pleasure to be on your podcast and with you. I think what you're doing is incredible and more people should actually think about it in in a more conscious way. So it's such a pleasure for me. Yeah, to tell you a little bit about my background or personal background. So I was born in a in a little country. I say little because it is, by comparison, a place that not many people know in Europe called Latvia. And I was born there to a a Russian Latvian family. And so I am of Eastern European background, although my DNA tests tell me that there's many other streams of blood that run through me and different types of nationalities that that come in, which is always exciting to read about. So I was born there. And at the age of 10, my, my parents and I and my sister, so the four of us, we left. The main reason, and yes, we did become political refugees. There's obviously different types of refugees and, you know, obviously the, the kind of most topical today perhaps is people who leave due to wars, people who leave due to climate. We left because it was following the fallout of the Soviet Union and there was an enormous amount of upheaval and incredible change in the 90s. And most of the countries that were part of the Soviet Union became independent. So Latvia became independent and... A lot of the people that, uh, Russian speaking or Russian background were discriminated against. And it became incredibly hard for my parents to see a, you know, a prosperous future for, for my sister and I. Obviously we were kids at the time. And so they took the, the risk to actually come as, first of all, come as tourists to Australia and apply for refugee status in Australia, sort of not knowing where we will end up. And after years and years of well, five years to be exact, of of a lot of hard work and a lot of you know research and application. And we went through several tribunals. We finally got the status that we were able to stay. So that's the kind of the the, the background to it. And and to connect that with my work at the World Bank, I didn't start in the international affairs space. I actually started in the corporate sector, in the private sector and worked for several multinational companies, but then really felt the need to have an impact at a a global scale. As an Australian girl, sort of growing up in Australia, suddenly I felt like it was a little too small for me. And so I needed to get out. And of course, diplomacy and the world of multilateral organizations seemed like the place to be. So following my bachelor's, did my master's in Switzerland. And even before sort of as I was finishing was uh, privileged enough to, to join an incredible organization, the World Bank Group, and was based out of Geneva, Switzerland there. So in a way, a sort of a, a, a full loop to, to being part of a, an incredible, you know, system that is, although World Bank wasn't directly working with refugees, there's a separate organization called the UNHCR that deals with that. But we were just up the road from UNHCR, actually. So, um, it was deeply moving for me to be part of that so that's that's how we got there so whilst the world bank was not directly or i was not directly working on refugee issues at the world bank we had a a slightly different mandate the un organization that deals with the refugee issues is unhcr and they the headquarters was just up the road from from where i was so uh, that was a great and a moving sort of connection to to where we were and where we began in australia
0: Mm. And so after working with the World Bank then, is that what drew you to Africa or how did you then end up in Africa launching the Founders Factory there?
1: So it gave me an opening and an understanding. So, yes, World Bank does, of course, work with governments and and countries, uh, developing countries specifically, although we also worked in in South Asia, so not just, just Africa following or as i moved out of kind of the, the multilateral system and i got increasingly interested in innovation so there was a point in time where i, I became sort of disillusioned or, or disheartened by the fact that i felt like there wasn't enough progress being made at the international level i felt like innovation and you know innovation at scale can be done in different means and different ways and at the time you know, and still, I think there's a lot of dialogue around, you know, private public sector collaboration. And I felt like there is a lack of that collaboration and therefore the millions of people on the ground and many of the governments are not able to grow and develop and let alone sort of innovate at scale and with the speed that they need to innovate. So that's what drew me to kind of the entrepreneurship side and, and, I found myself working with startups and advising them while still sort of being being at the World Bank, and was then sort of asked to come and run partnerships at an impact fund or an impact vehicle called Spring. and so moved to moved to London, which is when I met my business partner rue rogers, and and that's how we sort of started to work together in emerging markets and specifically in South Asia and East Africa. So that was the first sort of impact impact vehicle that we did and and worked with 76 entrepreneurs across nine markets with a gender lens impact sort of mandate. But that was the first time I truly, truly, and I remember my first time in Uganda, you know, fell in love with what Africa is and many different Africans. There's no one single Africa. There are 54 different Africans,
0: um, Mm. which which
1: is beautiful. Yeah.
0: Yeah, incredible. And so what kind of ventures were you building there and how is it really being on the ground?
1: So similar to Southeast Asia, Africa is, is many different types of countries, right? It is not a singular identity. It's not singular culture. You know, as I said, there's 54 different countries and you could draw parallels actually. And, and something that uh, is very interesting when you look at comparing some business models between Southeast Asia and Africa. Nigeria is huge probably akin to Southeast Asia's version of Indonesia, the scaled market. Singapore is probably you know akin to South Africa, etc. So we were building companies and still are. So Founders Factory Africa is is incredibly successful. We've just officially launched our Fund too and announced MasterCard Foundation and Johnson and Johnson joining Our existing initial funders, Standard Bank Group and Small Foundation and NetCare Group. So the portfolio continues to expand right now. We've got 62 companies under the first portfolio and we're building and investing in 105 more over the next five years. In terms of the types of companies, we looked at very much and and we're very market driven and very entrepreneur focused, which means... Obviously continuously keeping our finger on the pulse as to what business models would deliver the, the greatest propensity to, to scale and to eventually commercially exit, but also deliver impact, right? So for us, commercial viability and sustainability and impact actually go hand in hand. It's like concentric circles. So in that sense, if you look at the market, you know, perhaps not surprisingly, fintech, e-commerce, health tech, agri tech, we're the, the kind of the predominant sectors. Uh, we've now expanded and, and are now doing and investing in uh, mobility and logistics and have now become more or less sector agnostic. So, but the investment thesis is very much looking at business models that are going to scale across the continent and beyond. Again, it's, it's an important piece as VC, as investors, and, and uh, as, as people who really care about building an ecosystem on the ground. But it's an amazing place. You definitely have to come.
0: Yes, I would absolutely love to because <laughs> I have never been, that's for sure. Um, And so what then made you want to shift your focus also, or I guess not shift because you're still involved in the Founders Factory in Africa, but what wanted made you want to expand your focus to Southeast Asia and then to, you know, the catalyst to launch the Radical Fund?
1: When we were working at our, at our first impact vehicle in, in South Asia, I really fell in love and for a very long time have wanted to come to this region and work here. I can explain, uh, well, I can, maybe there's, there's a, there's a level of some con- subconscious intuition that I have wanted to experience and work in a culture, a region, and again, many different markets where that dynamic growth as well as need is absolutely astounding so if you you look at you know us and europe and other developed markets you know the type of innovation that you see there the type of uh, but even culturally people in southeast asia are really driven and that is something that is very unique i think and and to put it simply i really think that you know the future the future is is in asia and, and southeast asia specifically partly sort of wanting to be at the heart of that but also partly because I was really, really compelled by the opportunity and the need in the climate space. So obviously the Radical Fund is a climate-focused fund, and we invest in, in, in climate-oriented companies uh, in both decarbonization as well as adaptation space. And you know, if you look at again the kind of the need, the disproportionate impacts of, of climate in this region, but also on the flip side, the commercial opportunity to actually reduce costs, increase the alpha. It is incredibly exciting for me and for us uh, as a team. And maybe lastly, and and this is similar to, you know, when we're starting Founders Back to Africa, there is something about being at the forefront and pushing the boundaries. So when we started FFA, venture builders and VCs were quite nascent. You know, we were quite bold with our statement of, not just statement, we lived it to say that we will be investing in 100 companies through a very operational VC model, it was completely new and people thought we were you know, crazy and convincing a lot of the investors that actually early stage ecosystem matters. Because again, most people invest in series A, B and beyond. And in a similar manner here in Southeast Asia, you know, most people, are, uh, there's a lot of misperception about what climate and climate tech and investing climate means. I can't tell you about the number of conversations I have with people that hear climate tech and think that it's, only impact, or only philanthropy or charity. And so there's an enormous amount of education, if you like, that needs to happen. And so I thrive off that and, and a lot of my team do as well, where you, you feel like you are actually pushing the boundaries of people's perceptions and therefore are reaping the results. Those who are going to invest now in climate businesses are going to see their returns much more than those that will invest later. So for all those reasons, the Radical Fund was was born officially and launched
0: officially this year. Mm. I loved the name. As soon as I saw it, I was like, well, what if like the best name for a fund, (laughs) especially a fund in the climate space. So I wanted to just also understand what does radical really mean to you? Like, why did you pick that word? And are you seeing that like what you're investing in are really radical or are you kind of not seeing that the tech is actually radical? I'm like quite curious.
1: Yeah, very good question. So radical means being unconventional, being disruptive. And of course, you know, unsurprisingly, that's what we believe we need to be as a society in order to tackle and, you know, avoid what already is, you know, disastrous from a climate change point of view. So, you know, how do we radically change our perception? How do we radically change our behavior as, again, as citizens, as human beings, but also as investors, as entrepreneurs? So kind of the connotation to your point was, you know, we cannot just continue a status quo. We need to do something radical. And the other side of it is one of our values is radical transparency. And so as we're building out also, you know, our team and our brand and our, our culture and how we, how we work with our entrepreneurs, how we work with partners, it is very important for us to be authentic and radically transparent and you know maybe we can talk about it later but a lot of the a lot of the VC industry is not that you know it is very elitist it is very exclusive and and we don't believe that that needs to be the case so there's a lot of sort of cultural and and uh, i guess values based part of that in terms of the technologies and and types of business models so we're seeing both you know i think it's uh it is a usual perception that the best technologies come from developed markets and the US specifically it is absolutely true that most of the vc funding and climate you know 70% still goes to the US yeah you know, i think US got 32 billion southeast asia got 1.1 in mm. climate investments so like you know the, the the gap is huge however we are seeing in singapore is actually one of the places in southeast asia where there is a lot of ip and new product that is being developed, there's a lot of tech transfer as well. You know, for example, companies coming from China and, and using IP and bringing it here, companies in Australia and New Zealand as well. But there are sort of, you know, those kind of new and innovative deep tech or, or hard asset-based companies, lack of a better word. There's also other business model innovation companies, right? So if we're thinking about how do we actually invest in solutions that are going to impact and scale to across millions of people, you can't just invest in a piece of technology that will impact a community, right? That doesn't lead to mass adoption and mass influence. So you, our take is that you have to have a balance, right? You have to also look at, yes, IP driven and, and innovation is something that's completely different. But again, not all innovation needs to be a new piece of technology, right? And again, emerging markets is where, which is why we're so excited about it. Unlike developed countries where there is enormous amount of rigidity, here you're creating markets. You're literally creating economies. You're literally formalizing informal economies and creating businesses that have such potential to scale and and, and change millions of people's lives, right? As well as obviously, you know, create enormous commercial success. So you kind of need to look at both, you know, both sort of tech, deep tech, IP led, product led, but also innovation in how that business is reaching its customers in novel ways, how it's distributing its products in novel ways, in novel ways. That, that's what we were excited about.
0: Yeah. I mean I guess being having the exposure to different entrepreneurs, different companies, different ideas all the time, you must really just feel very positive about the situation and and the future of the planet, and I'm assuming, so please, yeah, tell me how you feel after. But because I think when I get really down sometimes with the weight of some of the things that you read or hear, or you just get a little jaded or eco-anxious or, you know, all the things, but then when I meet humans that are doing the incredible work and I just feel like, you know, my faith is restored in a sense, right? Like, oh, okay, no, there's some really smart people working on solutions and that always kind of brings me back out of it. And it's like, no, okay, it's okay. We're, we're humanity. Humans are re- resilient, right? we like, we really are resilient and we're going to keep going and we'll be fine. But yeah, I guess being at the forefront of that and, and the tech and the investments and everything, I don't know how, does it feel that way? I think
1: you absolutely have to be hopeful and positive in order to work in this, in, in this space. I would say that also technology itself is not a panacea, right? So you know, and and I'm not suggesting that's what you were referring to, but, you know, there is school of thought. There are people out there who think, you know, technology will just solve everything, and therefore you don't need to change anything that we're doing currently. We have the view, which is why we focus on both the mitigation side, kind of the prevention side, as well as the cause, kind of is that climate change is already here. We're already going beyond 1.5 degrees as disastrous as that sounds, we need to therefore adapt right to your point and have solutions that help us adapt. And, and so I think it's also, it depends on the speed and the pace, which is why also going back to, we believe that entrepreneurship is the best way to solve a crisis like climate change and its impacts because governments are too slow. Private sector is also, you know, not moving uh, sort of fast enough or the incentives are misaligned a lot of the time uh, that's not to say that they don't play their role, but if you look at startups and ventures, they have the greatest you know ability to scale solutions faster than any other kind of stakeholder and so yes, from a speed time to market scalability point of view, it is incredibly humbling and absolutely hopeful to see you know the kind of young and not so young entrepreneurs and founders who are who are really passionate about their business and, and are able to bring tech or tech enabled solutions faster than you know any other sector can it's the kind of the speed if we can do that faster than we're destroying the planet then we'll be okay <laughs> so let's hope that we can do it
0: yes faster Absolutely. And I wanted to circle back to what you were alluding to before around the sort of exclusivity almost or the difficulty of the VC world, you know, and Silicon Valley kind of being the benchmark for many things like around the world, VCs included, but what's kind of relevant or challenging or different about what you're seeing on the ground here. And also this idea of innovation, you know, you kind of said we've got what, 32 billion being invested in the U S into climate tech and innovation and only one point something billion here. How do we tip that scale? Like how, cause I'm sure there's also a lot of great stuff happening here, but it's obviously very heavily tipped again to the US. So how does that landscape change?
1: So it's a topic I think about a lot. And my partner, Rune, I talk about a lot, which is, I think globalization has really happened across different industries in different sectors, but it hasn't, it hasn't happened in the innovation space. And what we mean by that is Emerging markets or developing markets, and again, obviously, Southeast Asia and Africa are the two that we know best. You know, But you can also apply that to Latin America for sure. There is no shortage of entrepreneurs. So the, the quality, if you like, of people, of founders is no worse in, de- in developing countries than it is in the Silicon Valley. So myth number one, Silicon Valley does not produce better entrepreneurs. However, the entrepreneurs here are unfortunately disadvantaged. Why? Because the ecosystem, the infrastructure, the resources, the capital, the talent, human capital is just not on par to where, again, to use Silicon Valley. as An example has been, and by the way, Silicon Valley has been in the making for many, many, many years. And it was both through stakeholders like the government, like the military also, but also, you know, concessionary stakeholders and and organizations that are providing concessionary capital that are providing grants to seed and catalyze R and D, you know, tax incentives, sandboxes, all of that, and call it ecosystem, call it, um, you know, call it kind of startup economy is what, what is required in order to build a healthy pipeline of companies. So, you know, to use another data point, if you look at the VC funding per capita, in the US, it's $587. So VC funding per capita, 587 In Southeast Asia, it's $15. Wow. Right? So like... And it's, a you know, some people might call it a chicken or the egg. You know, do you build the startup ecosystem first and then the funding will come? Or do you actually need the funding and ecosystem for startups to build? And it's a little bit of both. Right. So we found ourselves responsible and part of our role is to build that pipeline and to invest capital and to invest human capital so that you're changing that and also changing the talent. Right. Try and find an amazing CPO that a startup can hire tomorrow in order to build their early stage business. So, so much depends on early stage entrepreneurship. You won't have scaled companies. You won't have exits if you don't have a bigger pipeline, a bigger pie of, of early stage entrepreneurs. So, we need to think about it. Maybe to use Singapore as an example, it is beyond, let's say, other parts of Southeast Asia because it is providing a lot of incentives and R&D grants and Laboratories and, and grant funding and stipends for people, for entrepreneurs to even start companies. All right. So we need a lot more talent, a lot more investment in talent because talent is, is what builds businesses. You need to change perception. And I can talk all day about perceptions and culture in Southeast Asia, like in Africa. It is hard for young people to choose entrepreneurship as a career choice. It is looked down upon. You know, you need to become a lawyer or. You know, you need to go and, and become an investment banker or a doctor, right? If you're an entrepreneur, that's a very risky, risky pathway. So all of these things, so culture, ecosystem, and it won't happen overnight. But that's ex- exactly why, you know, people like yourselves and ourselves, we need to, to play our part in building this out.
0: Yeah, I think it's so. Yeah, absolutely. I think everything you said, is, it's so true. We need the community. We need all the infrastructure, all the pieces that work together. So, yeah, and hopefully, you know, we're going to see a thriving region and that we can tip the scales, you know, and get some of that money invested in Asia and away from America. But, uh, yeah, I read something that I thought was quite interesting because, you know, with the Conscious Festival, we actually had the theme one year of like unlearning and relearning. And I read that, yeah, that's something that you hold really true is relearning is a critical skill to success. So I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit more.
1: Well, I've learned that in order to be a, a good investor and a good partner, you absolutely need to iterate on your mental models and your ideas and points of view and evolve and push yourself To places where you otherwise may have you know disregarded or you know uh, push yourself to completely different industries or sectors so it's not just obviously diversity of thought but it's actual relearning and unlearning but a lot of the time and and you know for me it happened because i've sort of straddled you know starting in the private sector going into kind of the public sector if you like then going into innovation i've seen how interconnected or how the interconnectedness of different industries and understanding of different aspects actually helps me apply that diversity of understanding and diversity of experiences in a way that makes me a better decision maker. But as I said, also a, a better partner to our founders and my team. So actually there's a book, I don't know if you've read it, by Daniel Epstein, I think, if I'm not wrong, called Range. And the whole book talks about sort of generalists versus specialists won't be surprising to you that the kind of he does it in a a Malcolm Gladwell style uh, kind of research but you know also delivers hard facts and the point is you know you need both right you need specialists and you generalists but the thing that struck me is that again you know as a specialist and we we hire specialists so so uh, part of our team is is hiring people who really understand their domain you also need to unlearn practices and cultures in order to be absolutely appropriate and aligned to the needs of entrepreneurs and the needs of the market today. And that will continuously change. And so if you're in a corporate world, you adjust and adapt to the norms and the needs and priorities of that. But that's not the case in the entrepreneurship space and, and innovation space. Uh, you cannot sit still. You have to continuously, as you said, unlearn and learn again and unlearn again. So... I think it's a very valuable skill and a hard one, a challenging one.
0: Absolutely, it's definitely not easy, you know. Especially when habits are so deeply ingrained or thoughts, uh, you know, have been rattling around for your whole life, it uh, can be really hard and confronting to have to unlearn and and refigure out how to navigate that. So, how do you think we can live wide awake?
1: I think that we need to be more humble. I think humility sometimes is lost in. The ever, you know, fast, you know, ever sort of growing, striving world that we live in, and again, especially the kind of the innovation, venture capital, entrepreneurship world where where so much happens in a day, and we touched a little bit of, about it uh, earlier. You know, the kind of the dynamics between different stakeholders, investors, are no better than entrepreneurs. Just because they have funding. And so bringing that humility is incredibly important. Also, with your family and your partners and your team, being humble, being authentic, I think allows us to live wide awake and conscious, if I can use that word, self aware and being present. I think being present, sometimes we think about the future too much and we run too fast to take in and be present and aware of this beautiful planet and the fact that, you know, we're so lucky to even be alive and doing what we do.
0: Yes, we really are. And hopefully more people think that way as well. Well, Alina, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciated you sharing and just giving us a really fascinating look at the landscape and just, yeah, what's kind of happening. And and yeah, thank you for making the time. Thank you so much, Steph. Thank you for having me. Three things I'm taking away from this conversation with Alina. Firstly, we absolutely need to iterate our mental models, our ideas and points of view and evolve and push ourselves to places where we otherwise may not have gone. Secondly, startups and ventures have the greatest ability to scale solutions faster than any other stakeholder, from a speed time to market scalability point of view, and it's very hopeful. Thirdly, let's remember to stay humble and practice humility in all that we do. curious what did you think about the episode and what were your main takeaways is there a topic you want me to dive deeper into I'd love to hear from you you can find me at Steph L Dixon or at live wide awake if you got something out of the podcast and you want to continue this journey with us consider subscribing and supporting I hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you ready to awaken and until next time live wide awake